Hi. Hi. Good morning. Um, this is Eliya. You're listening to my podcast. Um, Saturday morning, we are traveling together south out of Oakland towards Palo Alto. Um, going to show some people some glass blowing today. Um, hey, you know, it has been a little while, um, and I think, you know, my big dog died, and, um, that was a terrible blow, and I think, um, I've been puzzling with this episode, you know, and in some ways I think it's very serious, and so I think it's it's made me think a lot about it and want to really approach it correctly. And serious things like uh, my ten-year-old beautiful Leon Burger, well, you know, one of the best dogs in the world. Such a great dog, such a nice guy. Um, got really sick, and you know just fucking life, you know what I mean, and I'm gonna tell you the truth, there's a lot of people listening to this thing, and it makes me a little more nervous to record, because it's easy when nobody's listening, you know, or when you're all asleep, but, um, as more and more of these episodes get downloaded, um, I get more nervous about who's actually listening, uh, Makes it a little hard, you know. Makes it a little tricky to be really honest. But that's what we're here for. Honesty. That's what we're gonna do. Um, that's what we love about this. So, um, you know, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. Um, so today, the topic of today's meeting is skepticism and drug addiction and treatment, right? This is going to be, there's a lot of dots to connect here. Uh, I'm going to see if I can do this. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pull this off, but, you know, I'm going to try. Uh, we're going to ramble for a little while. Um, so, you know, I've been trying to investigate my own skepticism. Um, I feel like it can get in my way sometimes. Um, and then I chase it down a bit, and I also think, you know, when you've seen enough fucking shit go sideways, terrible or terrible things happen to good people, you know, it will make a fool skeptical, you know? Um, and so there's part of me, well, that's, that's the, that's the circular thought that I go through, um, of, like, trying to be optimistic about things. And then remembering reality and um, then being skeptical about things. So, um, let's think about some good things, huh? Um, been doing lots of great work lately. Um, very busy. Cold working, a lot of cold working. Um, a lot of teaching people glassflow and you know a lot of return customers to my teaching techniques and that's nice that's really 
comforting um, to see that the growth and the connection and the relationship to people that are interested in learning a craft and um, the way they want to learn more from me about these specifically mostly glass blowing techniques that's the main thing I'm teaching right now is glass glass blowing at the furnace um, something I know a lot about but it's something that's like in the ether there's a lot of interest in this you know um, not as much cold working not as much flame working a little bit of that um, nobody's asking me to teach them about bookbinding, printmaking, or cooking drugs in the basement. So, you know, keep it to glass void. Um, but that's fun. That's nice. And I've had some, I've, I've got, there's a, an art show coming up in November. Um, it's like a, a project gallery I'd refer to it as um, in a vague sense and the real terms of it is that it's actually a, a, a nine foot four by four pole like a four inch by four inch pole that is nine feet tall uh, in somebody's backyard ish it's actually on their neighbor's garage sticking up you can see it from the street but it's not accessible from the street uh, and so it's essentially a public art type space on private property um, and that is viewable then from the street 24 hours a day and the curator the owner of the poll um, wants me to do an art show on the pole um, and he's done a couple shows there it's like the beginning of an art that's really quite interesting very like deep intellectual art stuff uh, and so that was really cool to be contacted by this person and to kind of start this conversation um, La Mofetta um, M-O-F-E-T-A like uh, I, it's the skunk um, in a different language um, so this project but nice to have conversations with somebody that's like deeply art um, I think I find myself in this very strange place going back and forth between the arts and the crafts um, where a lot of the craft world that I'm in in the glass world the glass making and the cold working the hot working is doesn't have a deep knowledge of art and art movements. There's a couple glassblowers that do, that like paid attention in school to the art history, um, or that are more interested in art, but generally a lot of the glass people are like very knowledgeable about glass and glass artists, glass techniques, glass craft, but don't have, um, a big awareness of like contemporary art movements and similarly in the contemporary art world and the or sometimes it's referred to on the internet the ultra contemporary art world um, which I guess is the movement after contemporary art is ultra contemporary um, 
that a lot of these art people don't know about glass, don't know about glass art, don't know about glass ga glass art galleries, um, and don't know so much about craft and techniques and like all the complexities of the techniques. Um, there's there's certainly a few people that do kind of go back and forth and it's fun to connect with them and that's kind of a, a, a unique place um, but oftentimes it's very like a bounce back and forth between those um, and so it's really it was nice to have this like deep conversations with um, the gallerist at La Buffetta about art and different art thoughts um it sometimes feels a bit like a dream state <laughs> of like is do i is, is this stuff real that i'm thinking about in my art when i'm spending so much time in the craft world and just like teaching glass point techniques that don't have anything to do with like um larger aesthetic art movements um And then all of a sudden I start having these deep conversations with somebody who like knows all of these artists who I paid attention to and I think about a lot. And then I realize like it's real. It's all happening. Another great part was that um, he actually lived in New Orleans in the early 2000s, the same time that I lived in New Orleans in 2001 too. And so it was a very also another kind of dream like coming out of a dream state moment like as we talked about New Orleans and like recalled memories and people that we had known and things we had seen in New Orleans like I realized there were things that like I hadn't talked about with the person that would that had seen anything like that and seen those and a lot of kind of crazy circus performer um, weird real weirdos um, and you know he knew like knew the people by name and knew the bars that I was hanging out in so it was kind of a wild uh, moment of um, connecting with someone from that time and realizing that that had actually happened it was real so I once again do actually believe I did live in New Orleans and I did see some crazy shit um so that's real. I feel like I've been very connected to my art practice lately. I've been really like enjoying what my work is doing right now and my connection with my work and like how I am Uh, how I'm making it and how it is responding to me and the conversation I'm having in my studio with myself and my work. Um, and so that's like really exciting. Um, and maybe part of this is in that place where I'm like kind of between two worlds is like my practice is like part of a big part of my practice is like craft-based anti-craft and I think as I explore and expand my practice again and like build up parts of it I realize 
that I am um, sorry we're in with crazy slow down traffic here on Saturday morning it never fucking slows down like this um, but it looks like there's a big crazy accident here on I-80 so I've got to maneuver carefully through this sorry um, okay so as I expand my practice and like what I'm up to with my art um, I um I I think part of this is like seeing my connection disconnect with um, the craft. You know, I am like if I just kind of have my head down and I'm just working as a as a craftsperson and as a maker, um, and I'm like super focused on making and process oriented like I'm not really paying attention to my art I'm not doing weird shit I'm just like keeping things real tight and like detail oriented and just like I'm just making things um if I'm doing that um you know then I can I can stay focused on that if I start getting lost in my studio practice, getting really energized by making weird things that, you know, use craft as a springboard, but kind of like tweak it in weird ways, like disrupt that perfection, use that perfection kind of against itself. Um, that, that, um, But then, like, I get, you know, I get lost in that loop and get disconnected from the making. And, like, uh, you know, I think it's, like, holding on to these um, multiple layers of um, truth, of aesthetic choices, of technique, um is like it's wonderfully challenging you know uh going back and forth between these two worlds um which you know i wish there was more people i wish this was like more of a regular thing that like more craft people had like weird deep art practices um and there certainly are but maybe part of this is that it's actually hard to do that as you get sucked into a deep art practice then like you get pulled away from a crafty practice um, and as you're more into a crafty practice you kind of move a little further away it's it's it certainly feels a little bit like left brain right brain sort of stuff you're either like you know thinking technically or um, thinking more weirdly emotionally spiritually uh, 
and so well everybody crashed um, okay so emotional spiritual technicalities um, so I've been lost in my studio and I think I've been enjoying that I think it's reignited skepticism about galleries and museums um, about you know skepticism is about my own work I think by being excited about work and making work like I become I start questioning myself because it's like it's all speculation it's all like a bet in some ways I mean I certainly make art because I can't not make art it's like the only thing I can do I, I you know it's like this kind of draw that like is unavoidable um, and keep making and being weird making weird things and um And then that, I think, fosters this kind of, like, weird feelings about it. Like, is this a mistake? Like, what am I doing? Like, no one's going to believe in this. No one's going to like this sort of stuff. Um, and then if I'm able to kind of, like, steal myself in that and create a solid, like, understanding of my work and, like, yep, this is why I'm doing it and I like it, then I'll, like, get skeptical about galleries and institutional support and, like you know they're not going to see it or if they do see it like they're only going to support it because like it makes sense monetarily you know they can make money off it so they'll support it but they're not actually going to support me and support my art they're just going to want to make money and when it doesn't make money they're going to ditch me um so that like that brings up that skepticism and then I think is I also then like kind of grapple with all that and get myself in a good place with like okay I can make art and like there is some people in the art world and like galleries that I can connect with that I like then I get like skeptical about craft and like other like you know people making things and like other things being made that are very like you know more crafty and I'm like why am I even like doing so much crafty things uh, and like what is this like kind of like tight craft stuff like why do we always got to do this um, nobody loves weird stuff <laughs> everybody just loves the normal stuff um, cycles of skepticism but you can see that there's somehow they are based in like it's you know it's based in a reality I think I don't know is anything I do based in reality? That's a way deeper question. Um, but hot take, probably not. Probably not. Um, so um, here we are, deep in the craft-based anti-craft movement of art. Um, okay, so.
Now, let's weave this in to the next topic of conversation. Um, drug addiction, treatment, opiates, Nan Golden, the Sacklers. Um, it's fucking big, right? I know. That's why it's just taking me so long to get to this, because I've had to think about it so fucking much. Um, okay, so Nan Golden is an artist, uh, photographer, No, mostly no photo- photography, um, uh, 80s and 90s photographs of friends and people uh, on drugs. Um, people in, you know, Americana. Um, people in, you know, raw and real situations. Um, tension, uh, love, lust, uh, poverty. Uh, you know, documentarian in a way, um, documenting like, you know, real life, um, situations, uh, prostitution, drug use, poverty, really beautiful, stunning photographs. Um, you know, erotic, but in a, uh, kind of, you're not supposed to see it sort of way, or, uh, in a, you know, not for the, not the male gaze eroticism, but this kind of like, uh, you know, gross and real life, um, fucking sort of eroticism. I don't know if that totally explains it. Um, it is, it's hard to explain. It's beautiful. Uh, another couple artists that I think would be related would be Larry Clark and Dash Snow. Um, also photographic documentarians, um, who essentially documented kind of real life around them, uh, a lot of youth in, um, drug and sexual situations. And I think probably all of them, like what it is, is it's not about posing for the camera, um, in a kind of pornographic way, but it's about just kind of like people doing what they're doing and somebody that is able to take a picture without that, without those people really directly responding or, or, or modeling for the camera in a way. I think there's a kind of, it's, it's hard to, it's that kind of gray area. It's hard to kind of like really pinpoint where that, spaces between you know I mean there's a wide wide gap between posing and just documenting but then it also there's always an awareness of a camera so I think that it's there becomes this kind of barrier especially in describing it you know you certainly can like when you see it you can identify it in a way but I think that there is that um, you know strange space because real life without a camera looks a lot more like Nan Golden and Dash Snow and Larry Clark, but still real life without a camera is just a little different than real life with a camera. Um, there still is an element of like posing and modeling. Um, and I think it's important to identify that, uh, because I think that those artists tend to want to kind of say that, 
the camera doesn't exist in a way that they're just photographing it. But I think that I would argue that that it uh, we're always aware, or it, unless you're able to secretly document, um, the camera does exist. Uh, okay, so this is Nan Golden um, and. So she's, you know, spent many years, decades, making this amazing kind of photographic work. She's a, you know, and has other kind of um, photographic and artistic practices. But these are the main, just this kind of like known for documenting um, herself and others in. Uh, these pretty wild situations. Okay. Um, Nan had a show in the Palais de Tokyo in Paris in 2000. 2006, maybe? Sometime around that. 2005 or 6, I believe. Um, and I was friends with somebody that was uh, like her studio director. Somebody was working at her studio. And I gave them a glass heart that I had made. This is where the craft <laughs> enters the picture. Uh, a glass heart a red heart it like, looks like it's like in the shape of iconic heart not a anatomical heart um, but had like a crack in the down the center and then probably I'm guessing had like veins and I was making these hearts at this time that were like they were a play on these like uh, icon of a heart, like a lot of people make hearts. Valentine's Day, you make a glass heart. Um, and so I was making these hearts, but then like what, like a, a broken line down the middle. And then like veins on them and making them kind of like a little bit grotesque and weird. Um, and then just kind of like trying to sell them in the same places that people are selling these like normal like very like pink and like fluffy hearts um and so selling broken hearts for valentine's day uh and so i gave as a gift one of these hearts to a friend that was working for nan she, the friend was living in new york city um and i gave her this heart and then I guess at some point Nan saw this heart and wanted this to be part of her installation in her show in um, in Paris um, at the Palais de Tokyo, which is just an art museum. It's not a palace. It's not doesn't have anything to do with Tokyo or palace. It's just a big square, brutal art institution museum um and so this was an installation like of a space like somebody's bedroom sort of thing and i think this like 
broken heart like kind of struck a chord with Nan of like looking like you know I think it was described as like the kind of thing a teenage girl would have in her bedroom uh, and so I thought that was a wonderful compliment you know um, I didn't actually ever get to see the installation but this was the first time that I was uh, had work in the Palette of Tokyo um, later I had a much larger installation there in my own work but um, this is the first time um, probably first time showing in Paris I guess but kind of not technically really my own work but it was my work but it's in Nan's installation so um, a really wonderful moment of connection there so okay established who Nan is we've established this like very strange connect personal connection I have with her um, and then more recently um, Nan has um, done this been involved in this activism work around the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so there is a company, a family called the Sacklers. And now the Sacklers uh, are a um, a pharmaceutical company that helped to produce oxycotton, oxycodone, um, and this kind of um, roxies, I believe even maybe, um, roxycodone. Um, the, the Sacklers were involved in like this massive production of opiate based pills um, or opioids I suppose um, that were part of this like over the last 20 years is the huge growth of the pharmaceutical industry um, and this push into just producing more and more opiate-based medication, which is, like, hard. Like, even as I say this, I'm like, is was this really a growth? Like, this market is always fucking there, but um, I think that it was an actual growth, right? Um, because the market was already huge, and they pushed into it even huger, and part of the selling point of these opiates is that these were like new fangled versions um, of these opiates. Opiates. So opiates are. That's it, a. I believe the opiate is the opium based and the opioid is a 
um, synthetic version. Um, and so I think technically a lot of these are opioids. Um, but I think it's important to not get too into the weeds of dividing these up of like which is which because they all have the same effect. And I think that part of what was able to happen with these like fancy science terms is that they were able to spin this as a like a non-addictive version of these drugs and I think that that is like in some ways and this is we're going to get into the weeds of this but this is like the issue here is that it was being billed as like this is a new version like this is a sciencey version of heroin and this is a new thing so this is an opioid and we've taken all the addictive properties and we've given you all the painkilling properties and ta-da here it is a perfect painkiller and I think the two issues I'm going to kind of break down here are one that that's not fucking possible to make it not addictive like that is at the root of it that's what it is and you can spin it and you can turn it into a fucking black paste or a white powder but it's all fucking going to get you high in the same way and act on your body in the same way and you're not going to not be addicted you're going to be addicted and the other one is the fact that it just is being sold as a painkiller and that that's where we've kind of like oh we need this as a painkiller but then we've also been able to totally avoid this conversation around addiction depression and mental illness and so the Sackler family was the production company that was making these pills and marketing these pills and pushing these pills into the market. And the market being um, what is sometimes referred to as pill mills and these kind of um, pain management centers, um, you know, cut rate clinics with doctors who really just are there it's like you know bone back pain doctors who are really just there to fill prescriptions it's like a drug dealing situation but you got to go to school to become this drug dealer um and so there's been a lot of investigation to the Sacklers and, and kind of uh, memos, emails, all this information around like how they were marketing and how they were pushing and where their knowledge is and they say they don't know that it's addictive and then they you see these emails and say you know let's keep marketing the stuff to these people like let's sell to these people like they all they're hooked and let's keep them hooked and it's it almost feels like this kind of uh like the um the tobacco industry and like getting underneath the hood of the tobacco industry and seeing that all these people knew that tobacco was addictive but in court they're saying they don't know that it's addictive and they had no idea 
and you know and then we kind of all look back at like that shit we're like yeah of course they fucking did and you know and I think that's the same way we're seeing the Sackler situation is like you know <laughs> of course these people knew what they're doing of course they knew that this stuff was addictive of course they knew that they were selling that they were making massive amounts of pills some of them to pill mills that were being you know billed as pain management centers but really they were just ways for like you know, people to doctor shop and go get lots of pills, get bottles of oxys, and um, so there's been a lot of blame heaped on the Sacklers, and I think that what I'm trying to parse out and break down here is that perhaps. we need to look a little further at the government regulation and the way that we're allowing opiates to be sold rather than who is selling them. And I think that this is where the issue I've had with Nan and her activism around the Sacklers. It's like, what Nan Golden did was to um, kind of take the Sacklers to task and the Sacklers being also art collectors and art funders and that in the Victoria Albert Museum in London like there's a Sackler wing there's multiple institutions out there that have big like Sackler funding and they got a Sackler wing, they have a Sackler room, they got a fucking Sackler sign and so there's this big push to get the Sackler's name removed from that, the people didn't want Golden specifically didn't want the Sackler's name on these institutions that didn't want this funding to be there and you know I think it is I think it's important to take the stance I think it's good to take these people to task I think that there's a perhaps a bit of willful ignorance around who funds art um, if you chase money you're always going to find something fucking evil in there and you know a lot of art collectors are really terrible people where do you think money comes from from doing terrible things um, selling pharmaceuticals selling arms you know supporting terrible authoritative countries like there's a lot of bad <laughs> in art collectors because art collectors are big money and big money is often comes from really terrible places um, I wish I wish it didn't but um, this is the truth let's just be honest so the Sacklers you know 
on one hand, they're terrible people that are selling drugs. On the other hand, they're putting a lot of their money into institutions. And maybe it's just a tax break. Maybe that's why a lot of these situations happen is that, you know, nonprofits in America often exist as a place for people to kind of, instead of paying taxes, you get to put this money into this and then you can fund it. And you can, you know there's ways you can juggle your money around and kind of pretend fun things or spend it on things get your name on a wing and then you get a big tax break and you get to feel good about it right? um, and so a big part of Golden's activism has been around taking the Sacklers to task about this and you know raising a lot of awareness like is this you know do we really want this family name that's also associated with um, you know pushing these pharmaceuticals into poverty stricken areas of the country and making huge profits off of these pharmaceuticals. And I think that that's a difficult question because I think, you know, no, we don't want that. No, we don't want this family to be making that money and funding the art. But I think we also then have to look at how did we get to this place where this these people can make this money like you know if it wasn't them I believe somebody else would have some other company would have like the drug markets there like drug dealers gonna deal and it's not you know if the money is there and available what's well, gonna happen if the government regulation allows it if it allows these pill mills then you know, it's going to happen. The scientists are going to, you know, spin a tale about another opiate-based medication that's not addictive and is uh, you know, the new, the big new fangled thing. Like, this is, you know, I think methadone had a similar story of like, oh, here's this new you know, opiate base, and it's um, not as addictive, and um, we can make it, and it'll be the cure. And then it turns out it's it's just fucking addictive, and it's just another angle and I think then it kind of locks people into this world of addiction and regulation and I think I mean uh, and my my argument is super extreme like I believe that we should be allowing opiate use for people that want to use it either whether they're if it's just 
an addiction, if it's just like that's their thing they need, like we need to allow that, not have to make them lie and say I've got a pain in my back and so I need to have this drug for this. It's like if you want the fucking opiates, get a fucking prescription and we can get them and it's fucking regulated and it's safe and it's clean and it's, you know, it comes in a form that you can take safely, it's, you know, it's cheap enough and it's strong enough that you don't have to fucking inject it or snort it or smoke it. Like, you could take a pill and you could eat it and it gets you plenty high and it does what you need it to do. And we also have massive funding for mental health and that's going to help you get through this part because I think a lot of what addiction is at the root of addiction is mental health and you know depression and I think a conversation that a lot of people in this industry aren't willing to have is the use of opiates as antidepressants and I think that that is I think it's so controversial it's like not even people don't even have that conversation you know it's like we were willing to use benzos as antidepressants for a while, but even that, and it's like gotten into these even more spun off, crazier pharmaceuticals, um, SSRIs, and this like massive other industry that's also like super questionable because it's like a lot of drugs are being used to treat mental health. But there's not the same kind of funding around therapy, talk-based therapy, around, like, actually treating these mental health issues and acting like, you know, I think it's, there's a, there's a, something happening in the industry where it's a little bit of, like, just give it a pill it's not really an issue and I would argue that there's a lot of like real reasons to be fucking bummed you know whether like on a specific level of somebody's life and just like hard shit they're dealing with or like a larger general picture of like the fucking world is kind of fucked right now and the way we're doing things is pretty fucked and I can see that a lot of people are depressed and maybe addressing that at the root cause would be good, but um, maybe maybe that's crazy, right? Maybe that's crazy. Um, opiates is antidepressant. I mean, that's pretty crazy. I think that they, you know, full disclaimer: I am not a doctor. Let's remember that. You're listening to a podcast that's really just a sleep aid, and I do not know what I'm talking about. Um, so do not take my advice. I'm not a doctor. I'm just yammering while I'm driving. But um, here's what I do think, is that opiates can make you feel good. Yes, it's going to be short-term. But one first step to like getting past some depression Depression can be just getting to feel okay. Um, and I think this can be, in some ways, at the root of 
um, some MDMA-based therapies um, dealing with traumatic situations. It's like unlocking some of that tension around that traumatic event. Um, and it's more complex than that, but I think that if we're kind of looking at it in that way of like if we were treating mental health with way more aggressive talk-based therapy and you know kind of clinical settings we, we might be more willing to like use opiates and benzos to like get somebody out of a funk and get them into a better mental place so that then they can have a conversation and we can start to kind of get further down the line rather than just, you know, here's a pill and I hope you feel better and then that's it. And there's not like a talking through it and working through it and really like getting into some therapeutic sessions around what the issues are. And so this is a, certainly a dangerous thought to have, that, like, we could actually use those very addictive and high-powered drugs in that way. But I think if you look at what the people are doing and the way that these drugs are being used, like, they're being used by people that are fucking bummed, and they're using them to feel good, you know? And I think we have to kind of, like, notice that, that, like, there's lots of people that are sad and you know addiction is part of their story and you know I don't think I don't think the addiction came first and then they got depressed I think that there is a depression at the root of it and the addiction came after trying to treat that depression with drug use and I think they got a little ways along with it and they felt a little better but they didn't have an outlet and they also don't have a lot of societal structure and supports that can help them feel better so um this is really fucking crazy right I know you can see why should have been to sleep for this and see why I've been having so much trouble getting to this um, so opiates as antidepressant another very controversial topic um, let's put a pin in that one and the Sacklers um, they made a shit ton of money they made a lot of money on this. And they profited off this industry. But I think, let's go back to this idea of like government regulation. I think that we, our government system, did not properly structure... Um, the way that um, the, 
these drugs were regulated, the way these drugs were available. Um, I think that we need, you know, to think very seriously about the way that we're treating, you know, that you look at the way we're treating fentanyl now. It's just going back to the same war on drugs, like let's throw the drug dealers in jail, when it's like a massive pharmaceutical industry outside of our borders producing these pharmaceutical grade fentanyl that's just that's become this like huge industry and we're 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 treating street level people like these murderers and charging them with these insane levels of of crimes it's like they're just fucking drug addicts like they're fucking depressed and like you know poverty stricken people in a hard place like we're not doing this fucking right you know and like how do we dress that you know there was this massive industry that the Sacklers were funding of these pill mills and I think if we were able to think like a little bit more widely about it we could say okay well let's set up opiate centers in those same places that these pill mills were that all of these people were coming for drugs let's set those up and let's figure out a way to do it as like you know clean use treatment centers and a way that we can like provide you know therapy and like the right setting for people to use these drugs you know let's think about the market that's there I don't think that we can just turn off these pill mills and say well okay then it's you know it was the Sacklers are the issue they were the ones who were selling these pills like if we can just get rid of the Sacklers like we'll be fine like we need to address the issue of depression and drug addiction in a totally different way and and I think that we've just seen this like full cycle of like the war on drugs gone to like you know slight deregulation but not really addressing the issue the deregulation like creates the situation the Sacklers profited from by creating these pill mills and situations where drugs are really accessible but we're not really like we're still not like saying essentially opiate use is okay and it's something that people go through and that they have to do at times and that we can figure out a way to do it. we still say well opiates are only for pain and if they're using them for anything else then you're using them wrong but we'll let them out we'll let you use them for pain turns out more people are in pain okay that's okay and so there's more but then all of a sudden there's all this like opiate addiction and and then now we're in this place where fentanyl is like there's massive industries that are profiting when we could be making this money in the country and we could be not charging as much we could be spending way more money on mental health but instead we're allowing this illegal industry to exist and then instead of addressing it in 
at the ground level of like what is you know at the on the user side of like addressing the user side and how we view the user and how we view the people and how we view that treatment situation and instead we're we're addressing it on the delivery side and starting from the ground up from the you know charging people that give somebody fentanyl we're charging them with murder and then we're trying to chase it down on the borders which is also a fool's errand because it's like you know you're not going to catch it on the borders you're going to catch some but you're never going to catch it all and it's going to get through and it's part of the whole deal like it's can't it's like you cannot it's too much and we can't lock down the borders it also becomes this like crazy like tool to be used against the borders which is like not where it's you know Again, poor people are getting hit harder than they should be, and they're not the ones doing it. It's the poor people coming through the borders that are getting, that are feeling the wrath of this, and they're not the ones bringing it through. And then it's the poor people that are doing the drugs and selling, you know, small amounts that are getting charged with crimes that we should be charging larger pharmaceutical industries and larger enormous movements of this drug we should be charging them with crimes but we shouldn't even be charging them with crimes we should just be producing this drug within our border safely and creating ways for people to use it and say okay people are going to fucking use it they want to fucking use it we can't stop that we need to allow that and let's talk about why and let's give them some treatment that's not just another pill but it's societal structure it's it's functional schools it's you know real safety nets for people it's real structure it's real joy it's you know it's real therapy for people and instead of a grinding you know crush of profit engineering <sighs> holy fucking shit it's fucking crazy right that's really fucking crazy all right um, well, I'm going to go to work. Um, I love you a lot. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye for now. Okay. I finished with that job. And now I'm back in the car. Six in the morning on my way to a different job. Um, more work. More thinking. This one is taking so much work to think about all this. Uh, one thing that uh, really gets me going, obviously, if you listen to that crazy rant, uh, fucking drugs and poverty, you know, it's so sad, it's so sad, and the way the government stands and hidden government agendas around poverty and drugs, uh, it's so depressing and hard it really and it really gets me fired up as you can hear of the 27 sentences that I didn't completely finish as I ranted about drugs and poverty uh, I go off on a lot of different directions and I think you know as a craftsperson like it ties deeply into the centers of craft because craft is created by the poor 
Um, and prisons are a place where crafts exist and craft knowledge is carried through. So, now we've tied this back to craft. Let's also tie this back to skepticism. And let's go back to Golden. Um, so, Golden came, like, part of her angle was that she had been prescribed these painkillers and was told that they were not addictive and then became addicted and that this was the issue and this is kind of her stance and how she was able to start going against the Sacklers like she was personally a victim of this and I think you know I mean I'm really like I'm impressed that she took the stance and I think it was really important and I think it was really good and it's hard to think about this and talk about this stuff because I want to just be 100% supportive because I think anybody taking a stance against the way the government is dealing with drugs and drug addicts is important and any conversation gets us further down the line but I think that there's a couple of parts that I, I guess I take issue with and I'm, and I'm puzzling with is that one that Golden said they took an opiate and didn't think they'd get addicted. The doctor says they wouldn't get addicted. And then they did. And I think that any good opiate user knows there's no such thing as a non-addictive opiate. And they all dream of it. But it's not true. You know, methadone is way more addictive. Suboxone is so fucking gnarly to come off of. They have their, they play their parts, but, you know, the physical addiction is real, and withdrawal is real. Um, and so there's that one part. Then the other part is... It's using that, it, it's, it's playing into that same language that somehow addiction is bad. That I think there's the, that's the real issue, I think, is that it just plays the same language that, like, it's, it's rather than furthering the conversation into, well, you know, what's wrong with the addiction, what's wrong with using opiates because you're addicted? Like, is that are we really gonna like you know kind of take this moral crime like you're not strong enough to not be addicted and not look at addiction more as like a physical thing and understand it in a deeper way and look at the root causes but instead like you know it's supposed to be non-addictive as the doctor said so and, and that's a bad thing but I think that that's perpetuating that same conversation, that's perpetuating that same problematic language that is got us here in the first place. Um, that I think we shouldn't be talking like that. It's, you know, the, the, that is the issue. That it's 
part of the human condition <laughs> to become addicted to opiates. That's like what that, you know, we evolved with that flower and it created this bond with us and it's necessary and it's needed for our, you know, it was for our time and our connection with that. Um, you know, opiates are great if you broke all your legs and you need to lay down for six months. And you have somebody that can give you water. Um, so, those are the issues that I've taken with Golden and her stance. Because I think it's important what she did, but I think... You know, I get it, like, taking that stance. Like, look, you know, it's like, it's very... It's very shrewd in a way to take this like, look, the doctor said, here it says on this pill bottle that I'm not going to get addicted, and I did get addicted, and that's bad. And I kind of get it, and that's like using the language that they're speaking and coming at them. I mean, I do think personally, and this is just, you know, can't really be argued either way, but I think that Nan, you fucking know. You know about opiates, and you know how they work, and you've used them, and you know them, and ain't no doc gonna trick you into thinking they're not addictive. But it says there on the bottle, so you shouldn't be getting addicted. That's great. But, you know, here we are just having that same conversation and playing into that, and I think there's a bigger conversation we can have that, like, they shouldn't... That shouldn't be a problem. It shouldn't be a problem. It should be allowed because they are. That's what they are. Um, and so I'm incredibly skeptical about it all. Obviously, if you hadn't noticed, um, deep layers of skepticism about this all. Um, is there any right way to do this? Is there any way out? I don't know. I don't... It doesn't feel like it. It feels like we're trapped in this, like... You know, I mean, it's a, it's a marketplace. There's money to be made in all sorts of ways. And I don't think... Um, I, don't, I don't... It doesn't feel like there's a way to shift this. So, I guess need to rant and rave about it on a podcast. Um, so, deep skepticism um, about it all. Um, the language continues. And drugs continue to be a major issue. And will we be able to address them appropriately? I don't know, you know. I mean is is there any way out of this? You know, I'm a, the tiniest voice and I don't think I'll ever have the ability to really make a change on that stuff. And I can talk about this and I can yell about this, but I think the people in charge and the people with the microphones, um, you know, are coming at this in the wrong way, so,
Yeah. So this, I think, is if I can kind of round this around one more time into that my take on skepticism and am I too skeptical or am I in the right place am I, you know and I think that when I start getting into this kind of like skeptical angle and feeling the crush of humanity and I think, you know, I just need to be more optimistic and like think about it than I think about it and I get to these places where I'm like, I don't know, I'm not sure if this is if any of this is possible. Uh, and I think that that's part of our lot here as like real thinkers is to be really puzzled by it and think about it try to talk about it try to change it and not be able to do shit um I am reminded of Antonin Artaud and his letter to the French government about why opiates should be legal um uh, and I think I you know I had this vision of him like nodding out in a bath writing this letter to the government I'm not totally sure if that's actually how he did it but I, I assume that must be in the bath with a board across the bath writing by candlelight like while smoking his opium pipe that like we just need to like make opiates legal for people um, and I feel a bit like Antonin even though I don't personally love opiates. It's not something that has, like, I've, I've, you know, I haven't let it get its teeth into me. Um, I've certainly had my experiences, and it's a fucking powerful drug, and I really respect it, and I view it as a beautiful drug that's really great for massive injuries. Um... But I also see its ability to, you know, okay, let's, so here it is, I'm talking about the pain. I think that it's great for massive physical injuries. But I also think the mental anguish can be a similar physical pain, and I think that there are times when it can be used to treat mental pain, and I think that it has to be in order to be safely administered dealt with the mental pain needs to be dealt with not hidden away because your body is you're healing the physical pain if you're laying down um and if you're dealing with the mental anguish there has to be a way that you're addressing that and perhaps an opiate could be used to quiet the pain the fear um, but I mean I think that there's a lot that could be done to make conditions you know and perhaps it could be in a perfect world all sorts of 
resources would be available so opiates wouldn't even be reached for uh, in this way. And I think that's part of my, my dream. That's a total pipe dream, which is an opiate pipe dream. Um, so here I am in my bathtub, smoking my opium pipe, writing to the government saying, you should just let us all smoke opium. Um, yeah, fucking shit, man. Um, addiction, poverty, drugs, and uh, the leverage that is used against people, has been used against people, and will be used against people for ever and ever is um, definitely confusing and um, depressing and important to think about. Um, and I think, you know, something we can all spend more time puzzling with and being compassionate about and trying to understand the plight of ourselves and others and how we can make things better. But I don't know. Ain't shit getting better. Ain't shit getting better. So there you go. Um, happy Sunday. Hope you're feeling great. Hope you're doing great. Hope you're not dealing with this kind of bullshit. Um, yeah, you're important. I love you a lot. Thanks for listening. Um, and uh, we'll talk soon, right? Okay. Just send a message. Bye for now.